Amen. If you can, open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be picking up this morning the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'd like to open up by reading the text. It's 15 verses, and then we're going to go ahead and dive into it. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Common story, obviously, for many of us, I'm sure. It's um, in multiple places throughout the Gospels. But what's interesting here before we dive in, and I think this is always something to consider as we go through the gospel of John, is what is John doing in his gospel? And ultimately, we know if we look towards the end of his book, he mentions that he's to show Jesus as the Christ so that we might believe, right? Because it's in that belief that salvation comes. Well, chapter 6 and its structure is very similar to what we just saw in chapter 5. Both of them began with a feast, Both of them then have a miracle. We had the healing at the pool. Both of them live a claim to deity, but at the end, ultimately, a rejection of Christ. We saw that happen in chapter 5. We're going to see that play out again in chapter 6. The feast in the first one of chapter 5 was either the feast of booths or tabernacles, possibly even the Passover. We don't really know for sure, but this one, it says that it is the Passover that they're doing. One was a healing of a blind man at the pool. This one's the feeding of the 5,000. This is the fourth sign that John shows us because John shows these signs for what? To know that Jesus is the Christ. That's the common thread that runs all throughout John's gospel. This is one of the two creative miracles where Jesus provides things. The first one was the wine at the wedding feast of Cana. Here we're going to see him creating bread and providing that. And, and, and not by chance, those are the two elements that we celebrate at the Lord's communion. The last two Sundays, we saw this claim to deity. Pastor Dom last week talked about all the witnesses that spoke to it was. And the week before, Pastor Ben showing that Jesus and his connection to God and his deity. And we're going to see that again here as we go throughout the bread of life um, message that will be coming in the, in the coming weeks. The first one was in the southern kingdom of Judea. This one here is in Galilee. God's doing this and through his son all over the countryside. And something that I think is amazing with this feeding is the feeding of the 5,000 is going to essentially end his Galilean ministry. 
And then he's going to feed 4,000 later, and that's going to end his Gentile ministry. And then we're going to see him do the Last Supper, which is going to end his earthly ministry, all by which he's providing bread, providing food, showing that he's the bread of life. It's not the physical, it's the eternal, right? We see this over and over in, in the Gospel of John with him pointing to those things. Chapter 6, the longest, 71 verses. Hang on, Living Word Church. We're going to be here a minute. I'm not doing all 71 today, rest assured. But all of this, remember, points to John's effort of showing Jesus as the Christ. Because it's in that that that's where saving faith, that's where belief comes from, so that you and I can have salvation in Christ. This section here alone, we're going to see this common theme of Jesus lavishly providing with a great compassion for these people specifically which by extension is to all of us that ultimately name Christ. And as we move through the different conversations and the different things that are happening, we're going to see the, a compassion that he has for the people. Right? We're going to see the perceptiveness of him knowing what they need, not only earthly, but also eternally. We're going to see the profound, the lavishing of this provision that he provides And at the end, we're going to see that he is the prophet that is to come. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. In fact, the very thing that John is trying to get us to see, we see clearly. Repetition week after week, month after month, chapter after chapter as we go through this is so important for us. And John knew this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we needed to hear it and see it over and over again. That Jesus Christ is the Lord. That Jesus Christ is the great provider. He is Jehovah Jireh, as Pastor Ben said earlier. We're going to see that here in the text this morning. And this message being that Jesus Christ is the great provider. So we're going to jump in in verses 1 through 4 and kind of get an idea of where we're going here and the framework of what's happening. It starts off in verse 4, excuse me, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, and now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So just to give us some context here as well, this after this, in the Greek language, in its instruction, shows that it's not something that's immediate. We can see through that knowing that at the end of chapter 5, it doesn't jump directly into chapter 6. There's a period of time that takes place. The Word tells us that ourselves, but we also know that because of the feast that was started with in chapter 5 and the feast started with in chapter 6, there's a, there's a break of time. Once again, why? Because John is intentional in the stories that he tells showing that Jesus is the Christ. It's not necessarily um, chronologically point after point after point. He's doing something very pointed showing Christ. So that means it's not immediately. It's the same phrase that we're going to see if you look ahead at the beginning of chapter 7. Right? John is going to continue. Repetition. We're going to see this going through and through and through. It could have been six months, possibly as much as a year, depending on what feast was there in chapter 5. We don't know exactly. But the point is there was a time that has passed, and there were some pretty integral things that were happening during that time in Jesus' ministry that would, have, that would have really pointed in and honed in on this feeding of the 5,000, really given it much weight. The Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias is the same place. Tiberias was known to be an ancient city that was along the coast. It's also got names like the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Chinnereth. You'll see multiple things in Scripture given in a different name, but we're all talking about what you and I know today as the Sea of Galilee, coming from the Jordan River down towards the Dead Sea, a, very, a place that still exists here today. And Jesus is moving from the west coast 
of the Sea of Galilee, which was most populated, to the northeast side, up into where the, where the Jordan River would pour into it. So he's going to be making this voyage across to where this feeding is going to happen. And it appears, as the best we can tell, is as they get into the boat, the crowd's coming, as we see. And they're kind of seeming to, <coughs> excuse me, track with them and kind of follow them. But I'm guessing they're like running along the bank. I'm not exactly sure how that would have looked, right? But here we've got these people chasing Jesus because of the signs that he had been doing. Now, that period of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is important for us to understand what is going to play out here. Because during that time, two very important things happened in the ministry of Jesus. One is that he sent out his 12 apostles for the very first time, giving them power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. Right? It was a short ministry trip. They're coming back from that trip right now. And what he's doing is he's trying to provide a time of, of respite for them, a time of kind of coming off of the ministry field for them to share all that had gone on. Scripture tells us in the Synoptic Gospels that they didn't eat much because they didn't get sent out with much. But it was to a time of showing them, obviously, what it would look like for them when Christ ultimately left. So that's going on. And also we have the death of John the Baptist that has happened during this period of time which obviously would have been a dear friend to Christ, a dear friend of the disciples. So this time here when they get in the boat is really intended, even when they get on the bank, to be a time of kind of debriefing and relaxing and pouring into each other's life. But the crowds are still coming, right? So we see this journey that they take across. And Jesus knows their heart. Jesus knows why those people are there. It says there they're there for the signs, right? But we're going to see the way in which Jesus responds to them is just... It's just amazing, always knowing that he is our Lord, <coughs> excuse me, and our creator. And that's going to bring us to our first point this morning, that Jesus has pity in his provision. He has a compassion in his provision. The first part of verse 5 says, lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a crowd was coming toward him. Right? This lifting up his eyes is an acknowledgement of these people, an acknowledgement ultimately of their need. And we know, looking at it in, the, in Mark, that he says that he looked upon them with compassion. They looked as if they were sheep without a shepherd. Right? That's, how, that's how Jesus saw them when he's lifting up his eyes. Well, what do sheep look like without a shepherd? Kind of messed up? Nappy, right? They get eaten by other, by other animals. They jump into ditches. Um, they, they drown. Uh, I mean, they really are pretty pitiful animals uh, without the need of a shepherd. Um, and if you have ever a chance to check some out, I would encourage you to do so. They are just, they really are nasty animals. Um, from about the 50 yards, they're beautiful. You get in tighter. It's kind of like us. Right? It's amazing we compare it to sheep. Um, but he says that he has compassion on them. And, he, and they look like sheep without a shepherd, right? So it's this picture of them just scattered all across. We see a deep compassion from our Lord doing so. And this is not just this surface level emotion, you know, kind of you and I, we see people sometimes and we go, oh, poor thing. You know, we kind of got this, like this little pity party we do, but this is, this is something different. Actually in the original language in the Greek, that compassion comes from this word saplegezo, which means this, it's this feeling that comes from within what they would have described as the bowels, Right, that sounds gross to you and I today, but what it meant for them was it was the deepest seat of emotion. And that's the compassion. That's, the, that's how Jesus sees these people, even though they're coming at him with completely selfish wants and desires. 
I think for you and I, it's just good practice for us on how we engage the culture around us, how we engage people in our workplace, how we engage our family. Do we look at them and we, and we say, oh, wretched sinner, I can't believe you do what you do? Or do we look at them with a compassion knowing that they are sheep, ultimately that need the shepherd, the great shepherd? They're actually not sheep, they're goats. It makes it even worse, right? But they need to become sheep so that they can have the shepherd over them and to guide them and to lead them and ultimately unto eternity. Because of this, Jesus, knowing that they had this eternal need, he looks to their physical. He wants to meet them in the place that they're in. And how do we know that he engages them there first? Obviously, just looking here, well, when we look at, once again, in the, in the book of Mark, it says that he gets on shore as he crosses the water and he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them. And anything we see throughout Christ, throughout Scripture, we know what he began to teach them was the good news. He began to share the gospel with them. He began to preach them about why he was the Christ and why they needed to have him as the savior of their life. He was going to meet their physical need, but he knew what was most important was their eternal need. Actually, many times throughout the gospel, we see Jesus gets away from a certain area because he's got so many people coming on him with the physical that he's got to break away so that he can preach the gospel. That's why Jesus came was to preach the gospel so that those would repent and believe. But Jesus not only provided that, but he was also going to provide for their needs, their physical needs. He was going to meet them in the place that they were in. That's why we call him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Let's look back to Genesis and see where that came from, because that's going to help us understand some of this view of who Christ was in that time. I'm sure you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, and God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, which is just daunting to consider, right? When we pick up in verse 13 of chapter 22, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We know that that was a foreshadowing, ultimately, of Christ, right? The future tense of the Lord will provide. He provided in that moment, but he provided a ram. He provided a ram, but knowing into the future, he was going to provide the perfect lamb and that of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the connection here because now we see Jesus Christ walking the earth. I even think back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about the woman at the well in Samaria, He tells them to lift up his eyes. But think about even where they were there and the connection is they were at Jacob's well. They were on the mountain that they believed Abraham worshipped. These people were constantly looking back to the God, the one that will provide, the one that was coming. Although they were missing it because he was right there in their midst, they were missing it. But I think even in there in Jesus, when he lifts up his eyes, right, he looks up to these people with compassion. He tells us to lift up our eyes. You see those townspeople coming out of Sychar. Right, knowing that they just were presented with the gospel, that they have received Christ. What a beautiful picture of the compassion of the Lord and the response that comes with that in salvation. Another element of provision right there. He talked about water, eternal, eternal water. Once again, she was looking for the physical. Jesus pointed her ultimately to the eternal. Jesus knew all things. He had compassion on his people. But continuing there, not only did it end with him just having this compassion, he knew how he was going to meet it. Jesus is perceptive of their provision. He's sovereign. There's nothing that's going to catch God by surprise. Pick it up in the second part of verse 5. 
And Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are, but what are they for so many? So when you focus in right there on chapter six, he said, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus was perceptive of the need. He's sovereign. He already knew where he was going with this, but he did this here to test him. Jesus is not making this up as he goes. Nothing that Christ does is by chance. However, his disciples, just like you and I, are not quite getting it. They're not quite understanding. Although they've been out as the 12, as they've done miracle things that Christ has sent them out on, although they have seen all of this, here they stand in this moment of really not knowing what to do. But I wondered there when I read that question there, this idea of testing him. How could have Philip passed the test? If he was there to test him, how could he have passed the test? I think the same thing is true for you and I today when we think about our faith being tested. How do we pass the test of faithfulness? Well, I think the big picture is, is that he could have recalled all the times that he's previously seen God's hand provide for his life personal, for what he would have known of the Old Testament scriptures. He might have even been reminded of just as just one verse in this story in Psalm 78, speaking of the uh, provision in the wilderness. Psalm 78, 19 said, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? They were mocking him there in that section there. But ultimately, did God not provide in the Old Testament in the wilderness? Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And the same thing needs to be true for you and I today. Whenever we're presented with something that just seems insurmountable, something that can't be done, but God, right? But God, primarily in salvation, but then in any area of our life where we need the Lord, we need to remember what Christ has done. Not sit there and think that he's incapable to be able to walk in those ways. But unfortunately, that's not what Philip did. He looks to earthly man-centered provision. He pipes up and says, well, I've got 200 denarii worth of money, right? Which we believe would have been the purse that the uh, disciples would have carried around for buying different things. And he says, it's not even enough. And I would even make the argument that it kind of seems like he might have like some little T-Rex arms slightly too here. And he can't just kind of reach into that pouch to get that money out. I mean, I might be reading into it a little bit, but either way, either way, what he presents as an option clearly is not an option that would be sufficient for what needed to be done here. Jesus tests his disciples, and by extension, he's testing you and I in our faith. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Has your faith ever been tested? Maybe your faith's being tested today. Maybe it was tested this morning. How'd you do? Right? Sometimes I think we can say we've done well. Other times we're like Philip. And later we'll see, like Andrew, you know, I begin to think about different things. For example, as all of a sudden as your retirement account plummeted and now you don't know what's going to happen the rest of your life. Right? Are you faced with some sort of medical tragedy or some sort of illness that obviously 
you have no answer for. Absolutely, all those things happen. But what we have to constantly think back to is, what has God done? Who is God? What has God done in your life in the past? The very fact that you're sitting here today and you're saved is enough testament to what God can do with something that was dead and unable to respond in any way. We must remember what God did. Andrew doesn't appear to really do much different either. Of course, Jesus did ask him to go out and look for options. They come back, and I like to say this, and I was joking with Pastor Dom this week. I think Andrew like, just stole this little boy's lunch because uh, he just shows up with five barley loaves and two fish, and that's the only guy in the whole place that brought anything for lunch, and you stole it from him. Uh, no, he didn't really steal it from him. Jesus told him to go steal it from him. Um, but here you are still, they're looking at just man-centered approaches to feeding this throng of people, right? Clearly, Jesus knew that none of these things were going to work for what he needed to ultimately do. And look, be encouraged because Jesus is the great provider, right? All throughout this text here, we see God's provision in a very profound way. And we know this because the second part of verse six, it said, for he himself knew what he would do. Thank God we serve a God that knows what he's going to do. He's not guessing and trying to figure it out as we move along and trying to make another chess move as we make one. No, that's not how it works. God's sovereign. His moves are already in play and already are good and already are perfectly in place for what we need. Church, it's no different for you and I today. We have got to learn to rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that he is the great provider of all things. Our earthly means are minimal if even necessary in most cases, to God's work in our lives. Yes, we, we, we steward well and we walk in all those things, but ultimately God is our provider. I think regularly about um, when they placed the 12, and Joshua placed those 12 stones on the bank of the river. To remind, to remind them that God made dry land for them to walk across so that they can take back the promised land. There wasn't anything to do with them taking 12 stones from the bottom of the river, placing them on the bank as remembrance. God, let us do that regularly in our lives. You know, Jesus is not surprised by inflation and retirement account problems and Roe v. Wade issues and wokeness in the church and the social gospel and all of the things that are connected to everything we see around us. None of those things catch him by surprise because he's equipped us and placed us in a place to walk in that but not only that, he's promised. What does Romans eight twenty eight say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We must live lives of holiness and godliness to the glory of God. God will provide. It is out of that separation that we can effectively engage the culture around us with the gospel. Because we know something. We know that he is the great provider. As his children, not only do we know that he knows what we need and he's going to provide it, he does it in such a profound way. That's our third point, that Jesus is profound in his provision. He lavishes us with his goodness. When Jesus does a miracle, and we're going to see here shortly, that it is unmistakably, undeniably a work of God. Jesus didn't do any miracles that left us wondering what was the outcome. Everything he did was extremely pointed, and it was something that stood in testimony of him as God. It's profound what we see here. Look here in verse 10. 
And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And this is after he tried to get them to figure out what they were going to do. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. An amazing story. First of all, just for just a quick eyewitness account there, we see that John mentions much grass. It's another way of us knowing the time of the year that it would have been. Much grass would have been the springtime on the Galilean plains before it got too hot and scorched anything. Those little things are all throughout Scripture showing that these men were eyewitnesses of the Christ. Something so simple as just much grass happening at the same time as Passover. But also, this is the largest of scope of all of Jesus' miracles. Right? We know there that it says 5,000 men. Uh, but what that actually translates out of this to potentially fifteen to 20,000 people. When we look in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, it says it's besides women and children. Right? So 5,000, and that was their culture back then. They counted primarily head of household, the men. But it wasn't, I mean, 5,000 is enough, right, to be an amazing amount of people to feed. But just go ahead and triple that potentially, maybe even quadruple, depending on family sizes. Fifteen to 20,000 people. It's the only miracle it's listed in all four Gospels other than the resurrection itself. That, 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 that means something, right? There's a reason why that's in all four. For one, it's a creative miracle, right? Out of nothing, Christ is going to create here. And there were a lot of people in that area, not only because of his fame, but because of the Passover pilgrimage that they would have all done, passing through the countryside. So there, there's no, it should be no surprise to us on the amount of people they could have potentially gathered for this. And I believe Jesus miraculously sits these people down. Mark tells us that they were organizing groups of 50s and 10s. But have you ever tried to organize a group of 10 people? Much less 15 to 20? Like, you ever tried to, like, make a circle in a room with everybody and tell them to make a circle? Like, I don't know what shape comes out of that. You know, it's like people just have the inability to self-organize. But here the Christ, the Messiah, the God of all creation, has them set down 15 to 20,000 people. That's just, that's just amazing to consider what goes on there. But that's only one element of what's happening. And Jesus does, and he moves quickly here, and he takes the loaves. And he get, remember, we've got, he's got those five barley loaves, and he gives thanks. Well, that, that phrase there, give thanks, is really so important for us to see because, one, it's one that we're going to see in the institution of the Lord's Supper. When he does it there, he says, tells them to give thanks. Right, and here we are, providing this bread, feeding, giving thanks for it, looking up to God. He's providing here for their physical needs. And not only does it point us to the Last Supper and to, and to these physical needs that they have here, but for all of eternity going forward, it would be the thing that would be salvation for those that would repent and would believe. For those that would repent and believe, because not only would it just be bread, but it would be the broken body, the bread that was represented in Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is not a magic trick. You can read some stories and people trying to explain how he did this and he's pulling continual loaves out of his sleeve and all of this silliness. He's God. He is creating bread. Quit trying to figure it out any further than that, right? As he's breaking, he's distributing. It's gone out. It's super abundant. He's profound in his provision, 
There's nothing for us to doubt. Actually, that word distribute there means without reserve. Right? So as he's distributing, he's doing it without reserve. There's nothing to be held back. There's nothing to consider we might run out. It's continuously coming time after time, piece after piece, person after person. He's super abundant. He's lavishing his provision on these people. Unto the point that they're going to pick up 12 extra baskets, right? And then some believe that that's quite possibly connected to the 12 apostles that were there and having a provision for them. But either way, what's, what's most important is that it's, it's super abundant. It's above what the need was. There's no lack in Christ in any area that he's going to engage. He pours it out. He lavishes it. Ephesians 1, 7, 8, an amazing chapter speaking of our salvation says, And in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. But hang on a second. There's something we got to remember. This doesn't mean Christ lavishes on us everything we want, especially out of our sinful desires. It's all according to his will and his work in our lives. You don't get to rub him like a genie in the bottle and get what you want in this capacity. This is a profound lavishing of the things that matter most, the things that we need, primarily things that are eternal in weight and in value. Our desires must line up with the will of the Father. When we pray, our prayer is that we would line up with the will of God, that we would ask for those things in our life according to the will of the Father. And if we're asking for things that are not, may he chasten our hearts and show us and bend us to what he has for us. This miracle here also for the hearer, and I think even as we, I was looking at it this week, there was actually a very similar miracle that took place in the Old Testament. You may remember, it's with Elisha, 2 Kings 4, 42 and 44. And a man came from Belshazzar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men so that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. I thought also that's another story that the disciples could have recounted whenever he said, basically, how will we provide? A miracle of provision happens here. Notice the word barley, first of all, is what points us there. John's the only one that uses this word barley. And then when we go back to the Old Testament specifically, we see it here again. We see the connection and the tie of that word. Normally it would have been wheat, flour. They would have been, the bread would have been made out of. But that would have spoke to that of the commoner. Uh, it was a, a, a lower level of income would have made barley bread versus, versus flour. Notice the insufficient source. And once again, the profound provision that God does. Notice the abundance the leftovers that would happen there. That's because God is profound in his provision. He lavishes on those that he so chooses to do so. The Old Testament is constantly pointing to Christ. And that's something that you and I need to remember when we're reading. We're looking for Christ. We're not looking to over-allegorize Christ, but we know that all throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to the Savior. It's pointing to the very thing that Jesus is doing here on the earth at this time. The prophet Elisha in this miracle was one, but one that they would have known even more would have been Moses. Moses was their man. Right? As far as who you were going to listen to in that day for these people, it was Moses. 
And until you prove it otherwise, they were following Moses, although they really weren't technically following as they should. Right? They still, it, it carried much weight, and they understood the context of that. And the most profound connection back to that is Deuteronomy 18. And I believe this will be familiar with you. We're going to read three verses through 18. And the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. For among you, from your brothers, it is him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them at all, will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. Well, Moses is what we call a type of Christ, and he's speaking forward to the true Christ. And I believe we see here the crowd making this very same connection back to Moses. They would have understood Moses. They would have, they would have wanted to follow and listen to Moses' ways. And our fourth point here as we go through the last two verses is that Jesus is the prophesied prophet of eternal provision. Jesus is the Christ. What John is always trying to get us to see, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the prophet that was being prophesied about back here in Deuteronomy 18. We will raise up for you a prophet like me. Right? Moses was a picture, a type of Christ. He's Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. Verse 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're beginning to connect the bread, the manna in the wilderness, and Moses, and now Jesus, once again, in the wilderness, providing bread for them, right? They have this epiphany that comes up, this idea of, wait a second, this is what we have heard about. The second part there, it says, they do say explicitly that this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. There was an expectancy in that time of someone that was going to come and be their savior, Right? I think back to here, we see, excuse me, I think back here to previously in Jesus' life when he's born. But right here, we see that they, they perceive that he's the prophet, but they've, but they've got it wrong, right? They're following him for the wrong things. But I thought back to the story of Simeon in Luke 2, right? When Jesus was presented in the temple when he was just birthed. And Simeon says in this just profound way that this is the Savior, it was promised to me that I would not die until I saw the Savior. That's the recounting that someone does who knows who God is. He's recounting to the fact that not only this is the prophet, but this is the Messiah, the one who's come for us all. However, their claim here was just that, that. Jesus didn't come just to fill their bellies as they were for. They were meant to show him that he was, he was God, ultimately. He came to preach the gospel that they would repent and believe. Matthew 4, 17, for that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, 15, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the message that you hear from us week after week after week after week here because it is the very thing that brings us to saving faith. Repentance and belief in the gospel, but that's not what they have here. We don't see any repentance in their response. We don't see any repentance in the response to this crowd, even though they've heard the gospel, although the God of all creation has just met this amazing need before him, they still don't. There's no 
repentance. How did they, how did they respond? Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Does that show us repentance? I said they were going to take him by force. But why did they want to, why were they going to take him by force? And Jesus perceiving here, he he knows what's going on. He, he senses what they're about to do. And he's got to, and he knows that he's got to escape. What he actually does is he takes his disciples, gets them in the boat, sends them off, and then he's going to retreat off into the mountainside because they are literally going to take him by force. 15 to 20,000 people, remember? Or who are pursuing him in this way because they want to make him king because they have this need that they need met. For what? Roman oppression. Not the provision from any eternal element. They needed, they needed someone to save them from the oppression that they had experienced in, in Rome. And that's what they were going to do. And this guy seemed like the one that they were, going to, they were going to make do it for. They were going to take him and bring him over there to do that for him. Jesus knew that that was not the answer. Obviously, we see him escape. What I think we see there with them is there's this felt need on their part of what the Savior was supposed to do for them. And unfortunately, many of us, especially before Christ, and many of you possibly here today that don't know the Lord, that's the way in which we go throughout life is whatever, whatever needs we have a felt need for, that's what we run with and that's what we go with and that's what we ultimately pursue. Whether it be physical things, affirmation, recognition, growing in certain ways in our, in our jobs and in culture and whatever it is, we have these ideas of things that we need to satisfy the problem that we have in our life. And we come up with a list of things to do. And I saw an amazing quote this week from Dr. Albert Moeller. He's actually connected to that college that Ben just showed. And he said this, he said, the sinner's need for Christ is a need unlike all other needs. And the satisfaction of having other needs stroked and affirmed is often a hindrance to the sinner's understanding of the gospel. That's profound. It's something for us to think about. Not only in our personal lives, but we're out there in the community and we're sharing the gospel. Are we sharing a gospel of eternal provision? Or are we sharing what would be a false gospel just looking to meet the needs of someone in that moment? Because if we, if we try to connect those things and we meet that need of that person in a moment without presenting them with the gospel, then we've, we've essentially lied to them. We've told them that this is the gospel that saves you when in fact we never presented the eternal answer of repentance and belief. And that's how they're responding here. They're responding out of just some felt needs, what they needed to satisfy. Remember the rich young ruler, he comes to Christ and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus tells him to sell everything and to follow him. And what does he do? can't do it. He had a felt need of needing to do something and doing something right. But as soon as he was forced with the reality of what that meant to sell everything and to follow Christ, no, I didn't sign up for that. We can't share the gospel in the same, like that either. We do it with a love and with a compassion, but we've got to share the reality of what it means to truly repent and turn from a life of sinfulness and to walk in a way according to Christ. We can't be guilty of that either. Anywhere that we bring the gospel is where there are people that are making idols of self. Where idolatry exists is where the gospel needs to go. And that's what's happening here with these people. It's idolatry. They are after their own needs, their own wants, and they're willing to use Jesus if that's what it takes to take him back and overthrow Rome. Take it in today where we are today, and it's no different. Just pick, pick the topic. We do the same things. 
repentance and belief in the gospel. Next week, as we go into, as we move through the text, we're going to see a fifth sign. It's going to be similar. It's going to be Jesus doing this over the water, calming the storm. Right? Once again, we're going to see them not looking at, look, they're just going to have just seen Christ feed 20,000 people. And they're going to be worried about being in a storm. Right? It repeats itself over and over again, showing the reality of who Christ is in those moments and the reality of who you and I are and our need for Christ, for the provider of all things. We've got to learn to trust in God's provision. And in Matthew, he tells us to look at the birds. Do they worry about where they're going to get their food or where they're going to spend their time? No. And are we not that much more valuable than birds? All throughout this text here, we see the profound level of provision that God wants to do in our lives. If you're a believer here today, that plays out in every area of your life. And we need to remember who Christ is. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, the greatest thing you need is eternal provision. You need to place your faith in Christ through repentance and belief in the gospel. It's the only thing that ultimately matters. Christ is constantly taking the physical and pointing to the spiritual. The here and now and the eternal. Because that's what matters most. The Lord will provide. He is Jehovah Jireh. And we can say today to you and I, he has provided in our lives. Think all the way back to Genesis with that ram in the thicket. The Lord will provide. Did the Lord provide? Christ on Calvary. His life, his death, his resurrection. He was provided. He has happened. We're on this side of it now, seeing that that provision, the greatest provision of all, was done. Now it's time for you and I to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' lavish, profound, perceptive giving here throughout this text is one that we just never need to forget. When we get into those moments where things just don't seem right, where things are not where we want them to be, where they're not going the way we want, let us remember what Christ did. Let us remember and stand fast on who he is. Let us remember the compassion that he has on those that are around us, even when they were there for selfish needs. The compassion he had when he's speaking to his disciples and they're trying to find natural ways to a supernatural problem. When they're looking there on just the same thing and Jesus says, no, watch, I'm going to show you, we're going to have 12 extra baskets. And when he does it the next time, seven extra baskets. And when he does it for the third time for an eternity of people that name Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. That's the God we serve. Jesus Christ, the great provider. As we close out this message this morning, we're going to celebrate that with a song and we're going to sing in Christ alone. Because it is in Christ alone that any of this is possible. It's why John over and over again points and continues to tell us that Jesus is the Christ. And I want you to know that so you might believe in him, that you might repent and believe in the gospel. So as Pastor Miko begins to play, let us, let us stand and let us sing. Let us encourage one another in our song. And let's sing praise to Jehovah Jireh, the God of all provision. And I'll be back up to let us know. Father. God, it's in your power, God, that we stand. God, it's in your great provision and that we can walk with a surety. God, that you are God. That you are the great provider. And thank you for reminding us, God, for stories in your word, God, to show us 
that you are the Christ. God, showing us that it's not us, Father, but it's you. And that our ideas and our earthly things are nothing in comparison, God, to what matters most. God, to the eternal need for a Savior. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. God, thank you for your people. And our prayer, Father, as we walk out of these doors, is, God, that your word would resonate in our heart. And, God, that we would seek to give glory in all that we do. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I love you. You're dismissed. See you next week.